Good morning, North Boulevard. Man, don't you just love that song? Wow, you sounded beautiful singing it. We want to give a welcome to those who might be visiting with us today, and especially a welcome to our online uh, community that is joining us from uh, all over the country and perhaps all over the world. We're glad to have you with us wherever you may be watching from. We'd love to have you join us here in person whenever you are in the area or so uh, inclined. We rejoice with the great news about David Young's successful surgery. We're mindful and prayerful for the hurdles that still remain. And um, I have no idea if uh, David and Julie and family are tuning in uh, this morning, but if you all are, know that we continue to pray for you. Church, let's let them know that we continue to pray for them. And we rejoice now with the uh, amazing results of the surgery. David and Julie and Jonathan and Rachel, we, uh, we love you all dearly. And we are excited to be here this morning as we begin to celebrate Easter, Easter week. My name is David Skidmore, and I'm a youth minister here at North Boulevard and have served in that capacity for 21 years now. So the word youth, I don't think any longer applies except to the people uh, with whom I serve. Um, but it is an honor and privilege to be able to be here and to be one of uh, five others that'll share the pulpit for the next six weeks while David recovers. And we look forward to the day that he can be back here soon. So David, if you're watching, we look forward to you be standing back here soon because we know what it's like to, to have a job and then to have to be moved to another location temporarily. You share something in common with another David, David Blair. David Blair was second in command for what was going to be a historic post, was really excited. Have you ever had a job and found out that you were maybe a little too overqualified for that job and so you didn't get hired or they hired somebody else who maybe was less qualified? David Blair was going to be second in command, was really excited, wrote a letter to his family to let them know how excited he was until the person above him was, was relocated, and then everybody had to be moved down one slot. So the person that was first in command was second, and then second became third. And since David Blair was second on the totem pole, they, they didn't want to move him to third. His superior said, you're too overqualified. You don't deserve to be in the third position, so we'll send you to another post. He wrote another postcard to his family and said, it doesn't look like I'm going to be able to be a part of this moment at all. Sadly, um, I'm not going to be able to be the second officer on this one. I'm going to have to be the, the second officer on another ship. I will not get to sail on the maiden voyage of the RMS Titanic. Sadly, I won't get to experience being a part of history. He writes a postcard to his family that later has sold for thousands of dollars at auction because David Blair was the second officer, and instead of being moved to third officer when Henry Wilde became the first officer and everyone else was moved down, he took a post on another ship. It was not until much later that he, of course, recognized the fortuitous nature of his uh, temporary demotion. The reason I share that is because this week, April the 15th, we're going to celebrate the 115th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. It's Titanic Remembrance Day, and 110 years is pretty significant. It just so happens that it falls on Good Friday, a day in which the world will also celebrate another significant death and a far more significant burial and a far more significant moment in the history of our world. But I'm thinking about all of these days and dates and things we need to be reminded of. And when I thought about Good Friday, I realized it was on the 15th, and I thought, oh, the 15th is also Titanic Day. Our students know that I've been a, a fan, of, of a student of the Titanic for many, many years. And so on my phone, it popped up a reminder that that day is going to be on Friday. This word, Remind, some of our students may recognize this logo, the Remind app. is an app that teachers use to remind students about pending deadlines or coming up homework assignments or other appointments and things that you don't want to miss or maybe that you need to tell your parents about. Some of you may use an app like this to remind you of certain things that you don't want to forget. This word appears in Scripture. Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians. It happens in the 15th chapter. So late in his letter, which implies that he said a lot of things and dealt with a lot of issues that this church that was really troubled, experiencing conflict and strife and all kinds of trauma and all kinds of craziness, uh, later on in the letter, he writes these words. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. He says, I want to remind you this word, every other word, let's disappear every other word and just focus on this word. It's a word that you know the definition of. I mean, most of us don't have to think about what this word means. You, you know what it means until we look at it this way and you really begin to unpack the word. Mind, it's the collective, our, our collective thought 
Everything that we think about is our mind. But used as a verb, mind is to pay attention to, to obey something, to pay heed to. You, you mind the station. You mind the wheel. You mind your manners, things you need to pay attention to. If you are reminded, you're not just told something that you have forgotten. You're not just told something so that you will not forget to show up. But in, in this uh, usage of the word that Paul uses, this idea of reminding us, he's giving us a, a whole new brain. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's imagine that you've got your mind, and right now on your mind, in this room, you have deadlines or meetings or homework assignments or relationships or questions like, where are we eating lunch? All of these things are at the forefront of your mind. Take a step even deeper, and you've brought into this room things on your mind like addictions or worries or conflicts or even dreams. All of those things are on your mind. And because those things get on our mind, other things begin to fade away. And so when Paul says, I want to remind you, he says, not just, I, don't forget this, but he says, I want to take something that you were supposed to be minding and I want to put it back and reinstall it in its proper place of first importance. This is the thing that comes over all of those things. So he slowly wants to wipe those things off of our mind. But what is it that he says, I want to remind you of? Well, the psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean if you go to church, you're going to get all the things that you want. But instead, if you delight yourself in the Lord, God will give you new desires. He'll give you new things to want and new things to crave. He will, in fact, remind you like taking a Play-Doh sculpture and mashing it up and starting over and making something else. So what is it that Paul wants to remind us about? Again, not just so that we'll recall it, but so that it gets put in its proper place so that we can re-pay attention to it and re-obey it. Well, he goes on. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Big part of the story, church. If you got it, say got it. That he was buried. If you got it, say got it. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That's the story. And he says, whatever else is on your mind, this is the thing that should come before it. Before all of the addictions, before all of the conflicts, before all of the worries, before all of the pain and all of the grief, this is the thing that you have to put in the place of first importance. But that's so difficult to do because everything that happens slowly begins to push that story further into the back of our minds. And so Paul says, let me stop and let me remind you. It's a new way of looking at that verb of something that is of the first importance. So he writes another letter because they don't quite get everything in the first letter. They still have questions. They still forget things. And so he says, okay, let me remind you of some other things. And he says in his second letter to the Corinthians, you ourselves are our letter. You're written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you're a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not with, on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through, say it, church. We become not just the reminded, we become the reminders. We are now the ones that have the job of going and reminding other people. There's a book that I've used in ministry for many, many years. It's a book by Amanda Drury called Saying is Believing. A twist on, of course, the famous phrase, seeing is believing. The subtitle is The Necessity of Testimony in Adolescent Spiritual Development. Now, you can take out the word adolescent because it's true for all of us. She would say this. Let me just make it simple, almost as simple as a comic book. She says, what is your testimony? Now, testimony is a big, scary word to a teenager and a big, scary word to most of us. But at its simple nature, a testimony is simply a story that you tell and that you're a part of where God is one of the main characters. You say, wait a minute, isn't he the main character? Yeah, we understand that. But for some of us, we have trouble making God a character in any of our story. He's a, he's a part of our story today, of what we do on Sunday. But is God going to be a part of the main my main character in our story of Monday through Tuesday on to the rest of the week. Well, then Amanda Drury says this, it is extremely difficult to believe something that you never talk about. And most of us are never given opportunities to talk about our faith. 
And so we try in our ministry to have opportunities where students can share with one another, this is what God is doing. This is a story that I'm living in where God is part of, uh, is one of the main characters. Why? Because every person has a testimony that when you share it will sustain someone through the dark night of their soul. If you don't believe me, talk to anyone who's been through Celebrate Recovery and they will tell you everyone has a story. Fred Rogers, you didn't think I'd get through an entire sermon without mentioning Fred Rogers, did you? Fred Rogers carries, uh, carried in his wallet a folded up piece of paper that said these words, there is no one that you could not love once you know their story. There is no one that you can't love once you know their story. Now, you may have to help them work through some things and work beyond some things and to grow into some things, but he says, once you know their story, you say, well, no, not me. You, you don't know my story. And if I told my story, it would do more harm than good. Well, then I take you to Jacob's well. Jesus meets a woman. John records it in the fourth chapter of his gospel. And he tells the story about sitting with this woman. And he asks some questions of this woman. Now, this is a woman that is at the bottom of the list of anybody that would have a story that would be worth going and telling to other people, mainly because everybody already knew her story. She talks about things with Jesus. And then Jesus asks her a question. And he says, go get your husband. And she says, "I I don't have a husband. That statement is true. And Jesus says, in fact, what you said is true. The fact is, if Jesus starts a conversation with the fact is, you might be in trouble. He says, the fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man that you're with now is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. She realizes, oh, wow, this guy is from out of town. He doesn't know why I come here to the well by myself every day. He knows everything I ever did. She leaves her water jar. She runs back. She becomes the first missionary that is recorded in John's gospel. I mean, the least likely person. She's got multiple strikes. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan woman. She's a Samaritan woman with a reputation. She's there alone. Every reason not to listen to this woman. And yet, John tells us that many of the Samaritans believed in Jesus because of this woman's testimony. So now I just want to try to get one of the teens that can uh, help me volunteer. One of you guys in the front row, he'll stand up for me. He'll do that. Okay, Ethan, stand up. Eli, stand up. Sorry. Uh, all right, so uh, I want to tell you, so you, you got, uh, let's make this story now about you. We're going to go to the story of, of you, chapter 1 and verse 1, okay? So um, now we got many of the, what goes in that blank? Now we've worked through this before, maybe at True North, so you may have heard this. I'm not going to have you answer any questions, but just for the sake of everybody following along here to make it personal. Many of the, what goes in that blank, church, you could be standing up, so it apply to you as well, is any group of people to whom you have influence. So it could be teammates or classmates in his case. Maybe it's people that work beside you in the cubicles beside you or the neighbors who live behind you or the strangers who just moved in across the street or maybe it's the person you see every day at the coffee shop. Many of the, you put in somebody in that blank and then what goes in that second blank? What goes in that second blank is because of your life, the steps they take to getting closer or further away from Jesus. How do they respond to Jesus? In the Samaritan woman's story, they believed in him. But in your story, what is it? Do they, maybe they, they, they don't know about him, or maybe they, they, they don't know to take him seriously, or maybe they're not sure what to think about him, or maybe they're turned off by him, or maybe they are drawn to him. And I happen to think that that's true because I just know your life. Because of his testimony, because of your testimony, thank you very much. Many of the, you fill in the blank because everybody's got an answer for that first blank, and everybody's got the last blank. Your, your name goes in there. It's that middle blank that's really a struggle. Because of your testimony, what are people, are people being drawn closer to Jesus? Here, here's a, a good exercise. Let me get a, a, another volunteer. Let's just use somebody over here. Uh, Dalton, would you mind me using you? Just stand up right there. Dalton, I'm going to give you a challenge. I just call it the three, two, one challenge. It's very simple, Dalton. You're going to try to find this week somebody to sit down with, and you're going to share with them the first thing is three. You're going to share three significant spiritual events in your life. You could probably list several, but think of three, not just three great worship services you attended or three great events that you attended or three great things you remember your youth minister saying. Just kidding. But what are three moments in your life that, that really shaped who you are? And they, they could be moments like this, when you first sensed the presence of a real God, or when you made a real commitment to Jesus, or when was it that you realized that God would not easily let you go after you committed to him, but then did something opposite of, of what he wanted you to do. So you'll share those three events. And then the second thing that you will do is you will find two significant people of spiritual influence in your life. My guess is there's people in this room. There are certainly people that aren't, aren't even in this country, perhaps, or certainly live somewhere else. 
Find those two people and write a letter to them and just thank them for being a part of your story. They're saying, because of your life, I now have God as a main character in my story. And everybody, by the way, has the assignment, not just Dalton. And then the third thing you're going to do, Dalton, is you're going to share what is one significant decision you made that was affected by your faith in Jesus Christ and share that with somebody else. Because of my decision to follow Jesus, this thing is different. The best definition of worship that I've ever heard that I share with our students from time to time, worship is not what happens for 30 minutes on Sunday while we're here or at a youth group event or on a retreat or certainly, you know, just at, at church when we're singing. Worship is any time you do something different because of your faith in Jesus. You use different language. You're assigning worth to your relationship with Jesus. You, you, you honor your bride. You're assigning worth. You, you reach out to, to talk to a neighbor. You're assigning worth. You're worshiping anytime you do something different. So Dalton, what is one significant decision that you made? Thank you, Dalton. You can have a seat. So everybody can do this three, two, one challenge. It's a very simple way to share your story. Teens say, I just don't know how to talk. I say, okay, just sit somebody down and say, hey, three, two, one. I was given this job. I'm going to try this. I'm going to give you another tool that'll make it even easier. But I can tell you what one of those moments was for me. And anytime I'm asked to talk about significant spiritual moments, I talk about what happened to me in 1995, a story that I've told some of you, maybe from this pulpit, at least in 2012. So it's been a minute. And maybe at one of the New Day conferences and maybe at True North. So some of you have heard portions of this, but there's parts that are relevant and a surprising twist that's pretty exciting. I got to go to Ukraine as through, with an organization called Let's Start Talking, and it's an organization some of you are familiar with. You go into other countries and you teach English using the Gospel of Luke in our case. And so we took an easy-to-read version of the Gospel of Luke. We went to a country where we'd never been. I'd never been out of the country before. I had, for about 10 seconds, driven into Mexico with my mom on a trip my senior year. She got nervous and turned around, rides across the border, and we came back. I had spent all of 15 seconds in another country before we came back across. So going to Ukraine was, was quite the journey. I was engaged at the time. I had proposed to my wife 27 years ago today on April the 10th, and we were engaged, but we uh, were not engaged at the time we got assigned to our mission team. So she went to Kiev, and I went to a town called Bilitsertva, which stands for White Church because of the large white church that you'll see there, the church building you'll see at the end of the street, a church that was now more of a museum than it was a church. We put an ad in the paper that said, we're going to be studying English. Anybody that wants to learn English, everybody wanted to learn English and everybody wanted to meet an American. I can't tell you how bizarre it was to have people, once they found out that you were from America, they just wanted to come up to you and children would say the only question they knew in English, what time is it? What time is it? And you would tell them, they would giggle and they would run away. We put that ad in the newspaper and over 400 people showed up. We couldn't even fit them all in the classroom. So many people wanted to learn English and we all took on our readers. We could only take a, a certain number of readers. We'd have readers every 45 minutes from about nine in the morning till about four or five in the afternoon. And we would study with them and we'd use the gospel of Luke and we'd read. I sat at a back window of this agricultural institute. It was a university that had no air conditioning and the restrooms was a concrete floor with six holes in the ground and you walked into the room and that was the restroom of this public university. I sat there because it was the only place there was any ventilation and that's where I met several of my students and I ran into someone who changed my life, a 19-year-old whose name was Koistia Klesinko. Koistia had very broken English, had never stepped foot into church, had never opened a Bible, had heard a little bit about religion from his grandparents but knew, knew something of the church that was there in the town but knew nothing really about Jesus. And we began to read, and he wanted to know all about American culture and entertainment and movie stars. And I kept trying to guide him back to Luke. And one day, I needed to, some stamps to go and send letters to my donors, thank you letters, from Ukraine. I thought that'd be cool. And I said, I don't know where to get stamps. And he said, I'll take you to the post office. So we went, we stopped and got a warm Coke from a vendor, and we had walked several miles. And so we stopped at this statue of Lenin. And it is at this place that my life took a, a drastic turn. We sat down and we talked a little bit and I just thought this is really strange to be sitting underneath the statue of Vladimir Lenin, a statue that I just found out recently only came down in 2014. Did they have enough people in the village to pull this statue down? We sat at the base of the statue and Koistia stood up and he looked and he said, my grandmother say to me, this is God. But you say to me that Jesus is God. My grandmother said to me that this is God, but I have been to his tomb and Lenin is still there. 
He knelt down and he said, have you been to Jesus' tomb? And I said, I have not, but I know people who have. Is Jesus still there? No, he's not there. How do you know? And we proceeded to talk about the resurrection and witnesses to the resurrection. And one of the most compelling evidences to me that here are 11 men who went to their death saying that that the tomb was empty. If it had been a lie, one of them would have surely cracked. Even if they all believed it to be true and knew it to be true, you would have thought one of them to save their own life would have, would have made up the fact that it was a joke and said, we're just kidding. I just want to save my own life. You guys are on your own. I know what we saw. I know it's true, but I'm not going to die for this. That's compelling to me. And we talked about all those things. We went back and we sat down at our table and Koishta said, you say Jesus is no longer in his tomb. And I said, that's correct. And he said a sentence in broken, broken English that I know I've shared with many of you, but it was a moment that for a 25-year-old, it changed my world when he said, I must to know more about this Jesus. A 19-year-old, I must to know more. And I was humiliated because I was 25 years old. And I realized in that moment, it was the first time I had ever set a cross from someone and shared my faith to the point where they said, I want to know more about that. 25 years old. And I remember feeling humiliated. We went back to our desk and I said, Koistia, if you want to take out seven toothpicks, I carry them even then in my Bible. I've got bags up here, a little bag with seven toothpicks that's in my Bible. And I pulled those out and I said, Koistia, I want to show you something. And this is something that over time I've shown uh, several of you uh, and may have shared even here again years ago. But several families said, hey, we want to see that again. We need to be reminded of that thing that you did with those toothpicks some time ago. So it fit into this particular story, especially as we approach Easter week. But try to use toothpicks up here is going to be a problem. So I asked some students to help out. The seven of you that are helping me out, you guys come on up here. Today we're going to use pool noodles because they can be seen a little bit more easily where you are than toothpicks can. We have not rehearsed this, which will become painfully evident, I'm sure, here in just a moment. It went well in first service, but there's some new folks up here. We have students representing both of our campuses at the east and the west, and they're just going to grab any one of these pool noodles. Just stand there. And so I told Koistia, I said, Koistia, I want to draw a diagram for you, and this is the diagram that I drew with those toothpicks that we'll recreate here with these students, one at a time. When I walked in this morning, and Alexa was the first one to show up, and she saw the diagram, she said, what are we doing with these pool noodles? Pool noodles? And I showed her, and she said, oh, that's what we just did. She was just baptized weeks ago, and we got the toothpicks out, and we walked her through it so that she would know exactly what it was she was doing. She said, we just did this. I'm ready. And so she's going to represent our first line. Will you just hold that one up? This first line, I told Koistia, I said, let's just create a timeline of the life of Jesus. Koistia, do you know what a timeline is? And he said, yes. I said, well, we're going to make a timeline. He said, that looks like math equation. And I said, well, I don't know a lot about math. He said, that looks like diagramming of sentence. I said, I definitely don't know a lot about, you know, grammar or English. So uh, it won't be that. This is, this is a timeline. And this first line represents the life of Jesus. He was born here. We went to Luke and we read some of those stories. This is all of the events in Jesus' life that we've been talking about in the Gospel of Luke until we get to this point, 33 years. And then, as fate would have it, we have Luke representing this line uh, right here. And this is when Jesus comes to the cross. And we spent a lot of time talking about the cross and what happened. We talked about sacrifice and the Old Testament sacrifices and that they were shadows of, of a sacrifice yet to come. And that what, what Jesus died for on the cross, we spent uh, several sessions talking about this. And then we got to the point where we said after Jesus was crucified, then Jesus, let's just slide down this way, guys, just slide this way. Then when Jesus was crucified, then he was buried and he was put into the ground. So now we have his life before the cross, his death on the cross, and then Jesus' burial. And I said, now question for Lennon, this is where the story stops his life, and then his death and his burial. And that's where his story stops. And I said, Koistia, without the hope of Jesus, this is where all of our stories is going to stop, but not, but not your story. Because then I said, we have another toothpick, and that toothpick represents the resurrection from the tomb. Jesus raised three days later, and we have evidence even outside the Bible to, talk, to support that. We talked about that. And then we said there's another line which represents Jesus' life after the resurrection. He appeared for 40 days. He appeared to 500 people. He appeared to his disciples and to others, and he taught. And then he shared a commission and said, I want you to go into the ends of the earth, Koistia. And that's what's brought me here to the other side of the globe to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to obey everything until he comes back. Comes back, where did he go? Because Jesus ascended. And then he left us to be the reminders. And as if the angels tell Jesus, you trust them? Yes. That's your plan A? Yes. What is plan B? There's no plan B. We're the reminders. 
So we drew this on, on the table with toothpicks. And then I said, Koistia, let's just take these things off. And now let's look at a timeline for your life. Koistia, this is now for you. This is your life up to this point right here. And then Koistia, where I'm trying to get you to is this point where you encounter the cross and you realize this is a significant moment that says something about my life and I need to submit to this. But do you have to die on a cross? No, because that sacrifice was paid for you. But you still have to identify in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so you're going to be buried. And this is baptism. And we spent time talking about baptism. Because the idea of baptism was very strange to him. And I said, Koshia, if you're baptized and you go underwater, if you stay underwater, you die. When you go underwater, the only thing you're concerned about is a resurrection and coming up out of the water when you breathe again. And when you breathe again... The word for breath is the word for spirit. In the Bible, the word for spirit is the word for breath. And and Jesus is going to breathe life into you. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then you live in this line right here. And then we have the hope one day that we're going to be with God in the new heavens and the new earth. This here is now a timeline of your life. And we walk through each specific. But then I said to him, Koistia, it all comes down to the three horizontal lines on this little diagram. There's one right here. And there's one right here. So for just a second, just step off to the side and hold that one. If you guys will stay right where you are, and we're just going to take this one away. And now we have three horizontal lines and one large gulf. I told Koistia, I said, Koistia, most of the world, a lot of the world lives in this line. Those of us who believe in Jesus, we are living in this line and we have to try to cross this cavern. And the only way to do that is with the living hope of this horizontal line that Jesus spread his arms and died. And it becomes the bridge that allows us to go from one place to the other. Without it, there is no living hope. Everything hinges, Koistia, on what you're going to do with this particular line. Because right now, you're living in this line. And I've come across the world that I might invite you into a story where God is one of the main characters. Okay, so that's the diagram. Thank you, guys. You all can go and have a seat. I appreciate your help. So I said, Koisha, are you ready to be baptized? Sure. Show show me your appreciation. That actually is worthy of clapping because as church camp would prove, putting 17s on a space with seven pool noodles could have gone a whole lot worse than that. (laughs) And I said, so, Koistia, are you ready? And he said, oh, no, of course I'm not ready. I said, why not? He said, I'm, I'm, I'm not ready to, to, to do this. I must to know more. And I said, I've told you what you need to know. And I left, and I felt like I was a failure. And I said, God, you brought me all the way over here, and I feel like I failed. It was about uh, two or three years after that, in 1998, that I got a phone call. A phone call from a missionary named Betty Dollar. Betty Dollar, she said, uh, are you David Skidmore? I said, yes. She said, did you go to Ukraine in 1995? Yes, I did. She said, uh, do you know Koisha Klasenko? Yes, I do. She said, well, he was just baptized into Jesus last night and he insisted that I track down David Skidmore and tell him. And I sat at my desk and I wept because I realized that I was just a part of a story where God was the main character and he was doing something then that I had no way of knowing now. Then two or three years after that, I'm speaking in Memphis, Tennessee at a church that I grew up going to uh, when I was in college. And I was about to go on the stage and I was offside, off stage, looked at a, a track rack and they had some missionary tracks and I saw this picture. And I said, wait, 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 who, who is that? And somebody said, I don't know who that is, but I know who can tell you, David Ralston. So David Ralston came over. I said, David, who is that? Is his name Koistia? Yeah, Koistia Klasenko. How do you know him? I said, he was my reader with Let's Start Talking in 1995. What's he doing on this brochure? And he said, well, Koist is the preacher at the church in Bielet Zerkva. He's a minister that we sponsor there. And I wept again because I realized I was a part of a story where God was the main character. A few years after that, I'm in Lebanon, Tennessee, teaching at an event. I come out of the the lobby. I'm talking to my friend Johnny Markham. And I say to Johnny, I said, Johnny, tell so-and-so hello. And if if you see him, tell him David Skidmore said hey. And I start to leave. A lady comes over and she says, did you say your name was David Skidmore? I said, yes. She said, are you sure? (laughs) And I said, I'm pretty sure. And she said, uh, okay, well, do you go to church here? I go, no, I'm just visiting. She goes, me too. I- I'm a-, a choir leader for a-, a Christian school choir, and we've been on a tour all over the country. We just got back from Europe, and I was in Ukraine. And in Ukraine, I had somebody come up to me and said, you live in the United States? And I said, yes. Do you know David Skidmore? And she goes, the United States is a big place. And he says, well, if you see David Skidmore, you must tell him hello from his brother. Greetings in the Lord from Koista Klasinko. And she looks at me, and she goes, so, greetings in the Lord from your brother, Koistia Klasinko. <laughs> and I went back to the car and I wept again because I realized I was a part of a story where God was one of the main characters. And then, 
Just a short time after that at my computer, I get this picture with a message that says, Koisha Klasinko would like to be your friend on Facebook. And I added him on Facebook and he had one picture, only one picture other than his profile picture. And it was this picture of him baptizing someone in the river that I so hoped to have baptized him in when I was there in 1995. And I messaged him and I said, Koisha, it's me, David. And he said, oh, I've been trying to reach you forever. And we've exchanged text messages and Facebook messages and emails over the years. And even with the advances of technology, it wasn't until yesterday morning that for the first time since 1995 that we set up a Zoom call. Koisty is not allowed to leave the country. His family is in exile in Poland, and they have been sent, and he may not see them for six to eight months, he thinks at best. He has to stay. He has COVID currently. He's in his apartment quarantined by himself, and he said, I've got nothing but time, so why don't we talk? And for the first time in close to 30 years, we spoke together. We talked for a long time. I only recorded a few questions, but I wanted you to meet my friend Koistia, here he is. So North Boulevard, uh, I've been sharing with you the story of my friend Koistia, and here he is right here. Koistia, say hello to North Boulevard. Hello, church. So tell everybody where you are really quickly. I'm in Bila Cerfa right now, uh, a, a city of 250,000 people uh, located 50 miles down south from Kiev. And your family is now, um, they, they've left the country. Where are they? Uh, they are in Germany, uh, not far from Leipzig and uh, Berlin. And your church is in dispersion. Uh, they're, they're scattered all over the country and outside of the country. Is that right? Yeah, basically uh, uh, almost 70% of people are scattered uh, around uh, the world right now. So I've told the story today about how we met in 1995 and we, we read the Bible together. Um, you and I were talking earlier. What do you remember about that time that, that we studied together in, in 1995? Oh, I was, um, I was very embarrassed because I couldn't speak English uh, uh, good enough to communicate well with you. But it was uh, something, it was a, a groundbreaking experience for me. Um, uh, the first Bible that I got from you, the, the blue, uh, easy to read uh, New Testament, uh, I started reading it right away. Yeah. Uh, Tell everybody what you started reading first. Oh, the book of Revelation, of course. Yeah, yeah, good, good move. That was probably a good move. <laughs> I had questions and I, I ended up having more questions uh, and very little answers. And then I realized I need, I, need, I need to pay more attention to that. And I started reading the Bible from the very beginning. So you became a Christian three or four years after we first started studying. And um, one of my friends, Andy Williams, baptized you. I loved what you said earlier. Tell me what, what eventually was the turning point that made you realize I need to give my life to Jesus? Well, I was, uh, I had been shaped by what I heard, uh, what I experienced in the church, uh, attending it every Sunday uh, since 1996, a year after you left, uh, after I participated in Lester talking as a reader. Uh, so I've, I had been uh, attending worship services uh, uh, frequently, and uh, I was reading the Bible, and you know, so I, I started developing ideas and uh, thoughts and you know my life had had started to change and then uh, it was just uh, I was not reading with Andy by the way uh, we met of course in the church but I was not uh, a part of Lester talking uh, uh, program that year uh, and he just we were uh, having tea and he asked me so what do you think about all of this you had been attending church for so long. Why don't you uh, think about being baptized? And I said, well, I don't think I'm ready. Why, why did you feel uh, like you weren't ready? Well, because uh, I knew that I was not ready, you know, because I thought, well, I have this problem. I have this sin to cope with. I have this habit to, to tame. I have uh, this you know, virtue to develop in myself. And I felt like, you know, I'm, I've got to do something before I, you know, I actually uh, uh, get baptized. So you said, to Andy, you you said to Andy, I'm not ready. I'm not, I'm not good enough. What, what was oh yeah, I'm not good enough. I'm, the other one was, I'm, I'm not good enough because I thought like, you know, you, you got to be good enough to do it. And, uh, he, uh, and he said, you will never be ready. You will never be good enough. And I said, finally said, I'm, I don't feel like I'm worthy. That was like a final thing. And he said, 
Well, well, this is the reason why Jesus came actually to this world because nobody is worthy. Nobody is ready. Nobody is good enough. Nobody is worthy. So, and that same day, just a couple hours later, I was baptized in the river. Kostya, it's been such a blessing. This is the first time we have spoken together since 1995. We've, we've exchanged uh, texts and Facebook posts and uh, letters, but uh, this is the first time we have spoken. This has been such a tremendous blessing for me. Uh, and I'm so glad to introduce uh, my church family to a, a brother in Christ. Question, what is something you would like to say to North Boulevard about what we can be praying for you and your family uh, during this time right now in your country? One of the toughest challenges for, uh, for families uh, in Ukraine is that uh, uh, families are separated. Uh, statistically, over 45% uh, of all Ukrainian families have, uh, are, have to be apart. Uh, men are not allowed to leave the country. We are here to, to stand strong and defend, uh, while uh, uh, almost half of our families uh, uh, moved moved out of uh, of the country, our wives and our children, and it, it is something that is emotionally very hard on us. But of course, um, uh, all of the terrifying things, all of the all of the atrocities uh, that are discovered uh, basically every day, it's all of this is causing uh, a great psychological trauma to the people here. And I know we will. It will take a lot of time and a lot of efforts uh, uh, to to overcome all of this. It's just uh, there's no single thing that that I would say that okay, this is the most important uh, because it just in it, it, we're in the middle of a tremendous, of a terrible, of a horrible uh, storm that is causing so much harm in every aspect of our life. So we just appreciate that you're there with us. Uh, and God has been very gracious and very good. Uh, and we see that also every day. Uh, there's, there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of hope. Hostia, uh, we will continue to pray. And uh, as I say goodbye, in, in Russian, the word is dasvidaniya, which means goodbye. But I learned when I was there, there's a word in Ukrainian that is a little deeper in meaning. And that word is uh, dopobachina. Did I say it right? Uh -huh. How do you say it? Dopobachina. Dopobachina. And what, is that, what does that mean in English? Till we meet again. Yes. And, uh, and I pray that our paths will cross again. Uh, soon. I'm so glad to introduce my church family to you. I'm thankful for the work that you're doing and we'll continue to pray for you and your family, Kostya. Thank you all and uh, God bless you. It was, a, it was a tremendous joy to talk to a friend that I met in 1995. This is the picture of how it started and a picture that I've wanted now for 30 years. This is where we are uh, today. I told Koistia of how in our country that so many of our places, not only in our country but around the world, are now wrapping themselves in the colors uh, of the Ukrainian flag. You've probably seen them not just on people's social media profiles but on buildings all around the world. And I told Koistia it's because I'm reminded of, of Paul's letter to the Galatians where he says that in Christ all of you are children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, you have wrapped yourself with Christ's colors. You've clothed yourself with Christ to let the whole world know this is who my allegiance is to. My allegiance is to Jesus. When my oldest daughter Daisy was baptized, she wanted to be baptized and she was fairly young. And my wife and I weren't exactly sure if, if she was ready or new enough. Or is it because she was a youth minister's daughter, she had seen a lot of baptisms. So we kind of just put it off and let her bring it up again. And then she brought it up a second time. And we thought, we'll just wait again. And then by the third time, we found a letter on our bed that said, this is now the third time that I'm having to ask you about giving my life to Jesus. What more is it going to take? And we realized that we needed to have her have a conversation with somebody besides us. And so we gave Randall Matlock a call and we asked Randall to sit down with her and to just talk with her about, um, you know, does she know what she's doing? Uh, some others may have joined in that conversation. I took her to the bakery and we sat and we got the toothpicks out and we went through that drawing and this napkin is framed in my office. When she was baptized shortly after that, she said that she wanted to sign right there by the light switch so that every time I would go back to this baptistry here where hundreds of names are written 
that I would be able to see. And so uh, my other daughter's names are written there too. Their names are faded because of the pen they use. But all of my girls are right there. And whenever I go, I'm reminded of, of, of the story of that diagram that we live into. A diagram that students have, have told with pencils in school, or they've used straws around the cafeteria table, or they've used sticks on campouts, as some teens have told me. Lincoln logs in one case, because a, a student had a friend who had some Lincoln logs. One person ironically used nails to tell the story. One of my favorites is somebody uh, at a camp that told that story using Twizzlers and laid seven Twizzlers out and told that story. But nobody is probably all in like Russell Rigsby, who's the associate youth minister that works with youth over at the West Campus. Russell was all in. He showed me, he said, I want to show you my early birthday present. And he came and showed me that he had tattooed this on his arm. And he said, because so many people ask, what is that? And he said, I have no choice but to tell them the story. It was a friend of mine in college that was a big skater uh, back in the 90s. Of course, that was uh, very popular. And so were Vans tennis shoes. Probably some teens are wearing Vans now. This is the Vans logo, and it's on the bottom of the shoe. And I studied with a friend of mine, and after studying with him, I said, okay, why don't we uh, take the toothpicks and, and like, recreate this, this diagram so you can tell me that, that maybe you understand what this is we're talking about. He said, I can do better than that. He took his marker and he reached to the bottom of his shoe where he saw that logo and he drew this with a Sharpie marker. And he said a phrase that I've never forgotten. He said, it's been on my soul the whole time. All I was missing was the cross. He just needed to be reminded. And so we're going to end where we began because this Friday, as the world will remember the voyage of the Titanic, I wanted to point to another death and burial that the world will also celebrate on Good Friday. The Titanic was midway through its maiden voyage, a little over midway, receiving all kinds of messages through Morse code that there were icebergs all in the distance, messages that came in like this that when translated let them know that there was a lot of ice. Many of these warnings were overlooked, put in pockets and forgotten, or they were told to calm down. We have to get messages back home to other passengers. Frederick Fleet standing up in the crow's nest, you would have thought this might be the view that he saw to yell the famous iceberg right ahead. But Fred Fleet, just a young man shortly out of his teens, would stand there and look and see the iceberg after 11, uh, shortly after 11.49 p.m. He would ring the bell three times down to James Moody, who would then tell William Murdoch, all men who replaced David Blair at these posts, and say there's an iceberg. On most nights, with the moon shining on the ocean, you'd be able to see it reflecting off of the iceberg. But on this night, there was no moon, and this is what they would have seen. They had 45 seconds to make a decision, and despite their best efforts, could not turn the ship. And for eight seconds, the iceberg scraped along. Water began to pour out, pour in at seven tons per second, 400 tons per minute. Water was coming in 15 times faster than it could be pumped out. And once enough of the watertight compartments had been breached, they knew the architect of the ship, Thomas Andrews, knew the ship is not going to make it and it's going to sink. And sure, surely a couple of hours later it did. The ship sank, had 2,240 passengers and crew on board. There were lifeboats, enough lifeboats for only 1,178 people, but the first lifeboat left with only 28 of a possible 65. 472 lifeboat seats went unused, and over 1,500 people, 68% on board died. Most of them, hardly any of them drowned. Most of them died from exposure. Once they hit the water, it was only about 8 to 12 minutes before they would succumb to the, the cold temperatures. Only four people were pulled alive from the water. 705 of those in lifeboats were picked up by the Carpathia. But we still have a fascination with the Titanic. I share with our students at Winterfest that I've been a student of the Titanic for a long time and all these objects that get brought up from the bottom, cups and life preservers or maybe entire uh, place settings of cutlery, books where you can even still read the writing, menus from the final meal, the bell that Frederick Fleet would have, would have rang uh, three times to let them know there was an iceberg was, been, was, was brought up. In my office, I have a piece of Titanic wreckwood that has been authenticated from a family of a guy who pulled the wreckage uh, wood from the ship, made cabinets for some of the surviving officers. Years later, the shelf, which you'll see in the bottom of that picture, was taken out of this cabinet, split apart, and then sold in pieces. And so I, I own a piece of what they assume, because it's white pine, was a part of the deck of the Titanic that sits in my office. But there's no piece that has excited me more than this suitcase with the initials WHH. It belonged to William, I mean to Wallace Hartley. Wallace Hartley was 33 years old, was about to be married. He was going to make one more cruise leading the Titanic band. 
a band made up of eight members that had never met before. They had never performed together prior to this time on the ship. There was a quintet and a trio, and they would perform in different locations on the boat. Wallace Hartley's uh, portrayed in the movie by this actor. The scene that I'm about to describe is, is told in the movie. And as the ship was going down, Wallace Hartley knew that it was his job to maintain order because here's his quote. He said, music is more powerful than physical force in bringing order to chaos. And it's a bigger weapon for stopping disorder than anything on earth. And he said, gentlemen, we're going to assemble here. And he dismissed the band. But he continued to play, and the other members of the band turned around and came and played with him. Witnesses have corroborated what at first was thought to be legend, but many witnesses and every reliable scholar of the Titanic say, yes, in fact, the band did play as the Titanic went down. 2.17 a.m., the lights go out. The band is still heard playing at 2.18. At 2.20, the ship goes under. Several wireless operators said, we saw the band playing when the, when the boat was at a 60-degree list. The band, they continued to play. If you go to Gatlinburg, you'll see a memorial of all of these men who were regarded as heroes. Wallace Hartley's body was pulled out of the water 10 days later. All the band members died. Only three of their bodies were recovered. But a clutch to Wallace Hartley's chest was this case with this violin. It was given to his fiancee, Maria, who then gave it to someone else, and it was lost until 2006 when it was discovered. And somebody said, we think this might be the, the actual violin belonging to Wallace Hartley. After seven years of forensic investigation, it was determined that beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is the violin that Wallace Hartley played on the deck of the Titanic as it went down. Preserved because it was above the water, because he was clutched to his chest and uh, sustained no water damage. Over 40,000 people attended Wallace Hartley's funeral. He was the only member of the band whose body would be returned back to its home. And here's his tomb. Right below his tomb, his violin is memorialized because it was with this one weapon that he gave hope to those who knew they were about to meet their death. And Wallace Hartley said, I want everyone here to be reminded at a time when they feel as far away from God as possible, I want them to hear one song, a song that was written by two sisters, Sarah Adams and Eliza Adams. They were teenagers who had experienced a lot of pain, a lot of illness, a lot of loss of family members, a loss of job, a loss of finances, economic ruin. Their lives, uh, they'd experienced many disasters, but their preacher said, would you two poets write me a song that I could use in a sermon to illustrate the story of Jacob's ladder in Genesis? They thought about it and they said, even in the midst of our despair, we'll write a song. And so they did. And that was the song that Wallace Hartley said, I, will, I always said I would have this song played at my funeral. And when he recognized that he was officiating essentially his own funeral, this is the song he chose to play to remind. It was a song that, that David Young um, mentioned last week in his sermon because he said it brought him such hope. The words of two teenage girls that Wallace Hartley put to music and then played on the deck of the Titanic sounded something like this. say that was in fact the song that he played. So many witnesses report that they were on the lifeboats and began to sing because they could still hear the violin being played on the boat as it was going down. Below the violin on his tomb are the words to that song. There's, there's one last object that was brought up that is of interest to me. It was Frederick Fleet who was in the crow's nest and would have normally had access to binoculars to see a, an approaching iceberg. 
But on this particular day, he couldn't. There were binoculars on the Titanic in other places, but in the crow's nest of the Titanic, where Frederick Fleet was, he could not get in because it was locked. And he said, had I been able to open that lockbox and see the approaching iceberg with the binoculars, I might have been able to warn and we might have been saved. They said, well, why couldn't you get in there? He said, because we didn't have the keys. Where were the keys? Whose responsibility is it to have the keys to the lockbox? The person that holds the keys to the lockbox in the crow's nest of the Titanic, where the binoculars are, falls to the second officer. But that second officer was told to gather your belongings and go to another post. They were in David Blair's pocket when he left the Titanic. And because he had those keys, he forever lived with, you know, could I have done something to save all of these people? What have I done that I had the thing right there in my pocket that potentially could have saved them? And had I just thought, I mean, it certainly wasn't his fault. Nobody can really blame him. But we go back to Paul's message in Corinthians. I've now highlighted every part of this verse so far, except for one, and it's this one. For what I received, I passed on. Because we are the reminders. Church, when you leave here, this basket up front, baskets in the balcony at the back, there's uh, some teens who have been kind enough under the guidance of uh, our own uh, intern, Hope Hutchins, to put seven toothpicks in a bag. And here's your challenge. You have until Easter Sunday to find somebody to sit down and say, hey, let me show you something really cool with seven toothpicks. You got a second? And to tell that story. You are to be the reminders. I told Hope, I said, you, we can literally say that these were brought to you by Hope itself. This brings hope to, to, uh, to a, a father in Ukraine in a flat separated from his family. It brings hope possibly to a mom who's at church with her daughter recovering from uh, amazing surgery. We have living hope here, living hope in Ukraine, living hope all over this room. You, in fact, have a story, but what you have received, you have to pass on. Church, what I've tried to give you is the simplest way I know to say these are binoculars to help somebody see far into the distance of the icebergs that might take them out, and you still have time to guide them to salvation, but not if you put the keys in your pocket and walk away from here. And so, church, who do you need to remind who needs to be reminded as we gather at the Lord's table? Jesus knew that every week we would have to sit and we would have to have our mind reshaped. And so he calls us to the table and he says, every time you do this, I want your mind to be reshaped to remember that thing that is of first importance, that I died, that I was buried, and that I was raised. And whatever else is on your mind, this then gets put in first place. And then so shall your song be nearer, my God, to thee. Pick up the keys on your way out and then be sure and share them. And then let's join back and celebrate living hope next Easter Sunday. Church, let's stand while we sing.